welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction I'm joined today by Anne, Jonathan and Julian. Anne, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Anne Thomas. I'm a GP in Manchester and a primary care medical educator also in Manchester. Jonathan. Hi, I'm Jonathan Squibbs. I'm a final year GP trainee uh, based in South Manchester. Thank you. Julian. Hi, I'm Julian Tomkinson. I'm a GP and trainer in Bolton and a primary care medical educator in South and Central Manchester. Thank you very much. Today's podcast is part of the module which is called Talc Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning Care. It's mainly about a chapter which is called Is Chunking and Checking a Good Way to Eat an Elephant? In other words, one bite at a time. We're going to discuss effective ways to share information with patients which will help them to remember it. The approach we use aims to maintain a dialogue in the second half of the consultation as a prelude to developing an effective care plan. An effective care plan means one that's acceptable to the clinician medically and also feasible for the patient to carry out. And we rightly emphasise effective information gathering and examination skills to help us make the right assessment and diagnosis. So surely once that's happened, the clinician is sort of home and dry, aren't they? How do people get into difficulties with the explanation part of the consultation when most people would think making a diagnosis is the hard part? Yeah, I think that's part of it, isn't it? We sort of think of that as a difficult part, but there's lots of skills involved in this second part of the consultation. I think firstly, and this is especially true in examinations, that the clinicians spend so long in information gathering, they don't really allow any time for a proper explanation to plan care in collaboration with the patient. So if you're time pressured and all too often, the second half of the consultation changes from being a dialogue with the patient to a monologue from the clinician where the majority of the time is spent telling the patient what the clinician has decided that needs to be done. After listening so carefully during information gathering, this changes and the clinician takes over and starts to dominate the conversation. I think this is seen in all stages of training and in clinicians in practice, actually. And maybe this is because the clinicians feel once they are talking perhaps about the sort of medical aspect of the consultation, that they're in their comfort zone. They sort of, oh, I know what I'm doing now. I can talk about this and I feel comfortable. So I'll tell you all I know and everything that you have to do about it, which although satisfying for the clinician can have some negative effects. I think particularly during the clinician monologue, even if patients are nodding along nicely in agreement, possibly the patient doesn't really understand what the information they are giving means. They don't have chance to ask questions at pertinent times. They can't clarify information. And I think additionally, they may not agree with the plan or they might not understand what's been instructed. If people can't understand what's been instructed or agree with it, then it clearly reduces the likelihood that they're going to adhere to any plan that you might skillfully have come up with. Well, that's an important point because it would mean a lot of effort in making the right diagnosis could actually be wasted, I think. The title of this chapter refers to chunking and checking. Julian, what does chunking and checking actually mean? The title also says it's a good way to eat an elephant one bite at a time. 
And the explanation part of the consultation is actually big part potentially like an elephant and it often involves explaining a diagnosis or maybe several different diagnoses, possible investigations, management plans, medication, therapies, referrals and then follow up and making sure everything is understood. So there's a big elephant to deal with, chopping or dividing the explanation into bite-sized uh, edible chunks and then checking it's understood. The clinician and patient are on the same page. So as, as Anne said, if, if the patient doesn't understand the diagnosis, then the recommended treatment may not be taken on board or it might not even be heard. This process also needs to be tailored to the patient's prior knowledge and, and often needs to be tailored to information that has been said earlier in the consultation. So for example, if you're explaining the new diagnosis of diabetes to a patient, it's likely you're going to have a very different explanation for a professor of medicine than the explanation you provide to somebody who's never even heard of diabetes. Another really important part of chunking and checking is to have really organized logical sections. That normally would mean starting by explaining the diagnosis, checking that that's understood before moving on to the next steps, what might happen next. But I mean, it might, might not happen in that order, depending on how the patient's brought about the problem, but that's often the order it would have. And I said before, moving on to the, the next step, it's really important to, to check the patient understands what's been said before. So if it's a diagnosis, that particularly useful tool is to ask patients every stage, what questions do you have about that? And actually might say any questions, by asking and using the word what, it really makes the patient think about questions they might have, really provides an opportunity to clarify those questions. But I also find when I ask a question starting with what, it really makes me want to know the answer. And you can contrast that to saying any questions, which quite often can be used where you don't really want an answer and the patients don't always give you an answer. I think that's really, really helpful to be thinking about always getting the patient's response and also asking the patient what questions rather than any questions because as you say, if you say to people, have you got any questions, they always say no. Whereas what questions, you've got to say what's on your mind then, haven't you? And could you comment on what the clinician needs to be looking out for in the patient's responses? I mean, you know, if you ask them what their response is or what questions they've got, what kind of things are likely to come up? Yeah, I think this is a point to be really alert for cues or clues about how the patient is responding. So picking up on facial expression or body language as you're giving chunks of information, listening to the tone or volume of voice can give you information. As we move into this explanation and planning phase of the consultation, it remains really important to consider ideas, concerns and expectations because it's really very possible that these are going to have changed. They'll be changed by any new information that you've delivered and that's been received by the patient. So there is a need to address ice, as we call it, as it crops up in the discussion. For example, if a patient has presented up to you with a sore wrist and when they came in that day, their concern was that they developed a stress fracture, say, so thinking they might need an x-ray. And that's what they were thinking about when they came in. So you begin your explanation that maybe it's something which doesn't need an x-ray, like a sinovitis. So you explain that, but that means that their new concern might be not about having an x-ray or a fracture, but about something different in their life around perhaps their ability to work or the side effects of any medication so it is important that you know ice isn't one of those things that is done once and then forgotten so it's just being aware of that during it, this explanation phase so 
In terms of sharing information with patients, it sounds like some really important tools are assessing patients' prior knowledge or their starting point, and then breaking the information down into easy-to-remember chunks. Avril, I'm just interested about the evidence there is for this being a good approach. I think certainly in, in medical school, I was always taught about patients only being able to remember small amounts of info. So just interested what the evidence about how much they can remember and how to do that is. I think this is really interesting, and it goes back to some quite interesting psychology experiments. In 1956, somebody did some studies on this and, and came to the conclusion that humans can only hold seven plus or minus two items in their short-term memory. And some psychologists have even reduced this to only four items. And I wonder if this partly explains why clinicians worry about giving patients information, because clinicians believe that patients don't remember what they're told, or they think they only remember three things. But if you rummage about a bit more in this research, it was mainly done by asking people to remember things like sequences of digits, like telephone numbers, or other arbitrary lists of words, for example. And I don't think that kind of memorization has got much relevance to clinical situations, actually, because what we do know is that if you structure the information properly, and when it links to what people already know and they're already thinking about, then that new information forms part of a kind of narrative or story that they can remember, and they can hold a lot of information then. It's worth reading the chapter in the Calgary Cambridge book Skills for Communicating with Patients because it really summarises this research very well. But in short, in primary care, 90% of patients did actually remember all the most important points. And it's also important to remember the more information people are given, the more they remember. And most people actually say they want more information from their clinicians, not less. So I think we can be confident that if we break things up into small chunks and build it on what the patient already knows about by checking what they already know about, then they'll be able to remember the information. And I'm going to ask you now about how we might set about helping clinicians to learn more effective explanation skills. I think it's helpful to begin by exploring attitudes to explanations, to explore what clinicians feel about how much patients remember bringing in the things you've just talked about, Avril, and to hear any experiences around explanation difficulties. And those themes sometimes go sort of saying, or oh, people don't listen, or people, you know, people can't remember what I've said. So that's really important. So introducing the idea of dialogue in the explanation and reinforcing it's not just the clinician gets a chance to deliver a lecture, as I spoke about before. Introduce the ideas of checking prior knowledge and linking it to what you've just said and this narrative I think is really helpful. Explain as Julian did what chunking is and then checking and actually how to do it. I think even in experienced clinicians, it's common to hear long explanations without a pause, without chance for clarification, or chance for questions. So you might perhaps give an example of how to do this. Sometimes what we do is, you know, compare the sort of explanations you might hear going back to the presentation of Tina Sinovitis, the clinician in his comfort zone sits down. So what I found is evidence of something called Tina Sinovitis, which is inflammation of the tendons which are those bits that connect the muscles to the bone. It's usually caused by overuse and it can take weeks and months to settle. So the things you can do at this point include rest from activities that make it worse, maybe get a splint to keep the wrist still. Also medication you can try is non-steroidal tablets like ibuprofen or a gel. So any questions? So these are the sort of explanations we hear, which actually isn't that long, but is a monologue. Perhaps demonstrate or uh, model something with a chunk. So begin with saying something like, it's very likely you have tenosidivitis, and then pause. 
and wait for a patient response. So the idea is by modeling this and showing the use of this pause, that then there's a space to pick up cues from the patient. Do patients lean in? Do they sit back and look shocked? And often actually in a pause, most people will speak, maybe to ask a question, which then allows you to respond. So depending on the response, maybe another chunk of information. By modeling it in this way and actually allowing the clinicians in training to see the difference, then this can be a really good exercise to do when trying to introduce them and teach these skills. I think that's a really good idea to begin with attitudes and then to do some sort of demonstrations of the different kind of ways of doing this. Clearly, people need to actually practice this, particularly as I find the idea of stopping to check prior knowledge or to check the patient's response to the information. This doesn't come naturally to many clinicians. So, Julian, how can we get clinicians to practice these skills? I totally agree with what Anne said about the first thing is to identify that there's an issue and there's a different way to do this. There's another technique you can do sometimes in a one-to-one setting. You you might be even watching a video with a a clinician and a mapping exercise. The details of that are in the attached documentation to the module where you actually the clinician and educator both watch the video and map out who's doing most of the talking. That's quite a powerful way to identify an issue. Once it's identified, there are different ways to do this, but a really great way is to just set up a skills rehearsal. And that can be done in a one-to-one setting or a group setting. It's useful to have some really well-constructed pre-written material. I suppose in a one-to-one setting, you may watch a video back live and then and then re-rehearse it and try different things and try putting the chunks in like Anne was describing in the example she gave. And then in a group setting, you could have an observer set up, a patient, doctor and a clinician observer, or the educator who's doing a one-to-one tutorial may have a pre-written checklist and then have specific skills which are going to be assessed. So the observer or the educator really looks out for for the parts of explanation and chunking and checking which is, is being seen in the exercise. So again, it's, it's important to have pre-written material that just focuses on this area so it's, it's not overwhelming and again as I've said there, there are some case examples in the in the attached materials now you can keep doing this exercise several times and focus on different elements of, in the feedback so you may start by just saying well, what seemed to work best when you did some chunking and checking just now you might run it again and say well what felt unrealistic or clunky or awkward and then finally it's really important to to really tease out um, what it feels like and if everybody's had a go at doing it it's really important to tease out what it feels like to be the patient when when explanations are done in a stepwise approach the discussion that often comes out in this is that it feels much better and nicer to be given a little bit of chunks of information and then it works more fluently but also it, the clinicians often say that actually what helped me do it better was using the ideas and concerns and expectations that I heard earlier on in the consultation or just by tailoring the information specifically to the needs of the patient. That made big differences in the success of the encounter. Absolutely. That last point about using the patient's ideas and concerns is is really important, isn't it? And the details of how to set up the skills rehearsal that you describe, I think, will make that very successful. And educators who are interested will find written materials about chunking and checking, but also in the TALC Effective Teaching Methods for Consultation Skills, there's a whole section on how to make your skills rehearsals really effective. 
Jonathan, as a clinician in training, how have you found it if you try and assess a patient's prior knowledge or what their starting point is, say for a new diagnosis like hypothyroidism or a diagnosis of pneumonia? How have you found that? It's certainly something that I have developed throughout my training and my skills at doing that. And I think certainly Anne and Julian have really clearly said some of my worries or concerns about doing this, certainly, you know, I'm in my comfort zone when I'm talking about what I think the diagnosis is, there's time pressures. I feel almost counterintuitive, I think, to, to do a pause, to ask patients sort of what their starting point is, what, what their prior knowledge is. Certainly, I often felt that it would take longer to do that, including more talking. But what I found is that overall, it reduces consultation length. As Anne was saying, it improves adherence to treatments, stops people representing because they don't understand what we've talked about. So really taking the time to invest in that initial explanation, I found really helpful. And I mean, we've all got the examples of patients who, you know, we spent five minutes explaining diabetes to a diabetic consultant, for example. But I also think it's it's really important in patients where sometimes I think we can assume prior knowledge that we assume maybe everybody would have. And for instance, I was once examining a patient's abdomen and went on about how I was really concerned about appendicitis and, and sort of went on about we need to get surgeons involved and refer you in. And, and after a few minutes, I just thought, hang on, you don't understand this, do you? And the patient hadn't heard of appendix before and didn't understand the severity of that. So I've certainly found taking that few minutes of, of saying, okay, this is what I think is going on giving the time for them to respond has been really important and um, for all the reasons that have been mentioned. And I think something else that I've, I've found as well is when we're asking about responses and, and getting patients to responses from what we've been saying um, throughout explanations when we have chunked and, and checking. Again, that's something that I've really had to develop over time as well, particularly in what I say, how I say it, when I say it. I remember once sort of asking a patient how are you feeling now? And they said, well, feeling no better because you've not done anything but talk to me. And what I really meant was, what are your thoughts and what questions do you have? So I think it's really important to try out things. And now I certainly use a lot more of the, the tools that Julie was talking about, about asking what questions patients have and being quite specific about saying about what we've just discussed. And I found that's really been helpful in order to gain information from patients so that I can then carry on tailoring the explanation and the information that I give. Thanks, Jonathan. That's really interesting. And I, I think that phrase, I'm wondering what thoughts you have now or I'm wondering what questions you've got now as you say that directs it to what you've been talking about uh, and really can open up the discussion and I thought your appendicitis example was fascinating because we do make a lot of assumptions about what people know about overall using new skills can feel a bit awkward until you get some practice and some fluency and that's why practicing in skills rehearsals with feedback can be so valuable because you've tried it out in practice before trying it on a real patient so thank you to everybody for a really interesting discussion about chunking and checking. Explanation and planning is a very complex topic with many skills involved. It's always worth looking in your textbook of consultation skills and looking at all the chapters in the TALP module called Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning Care, which also includes chapters on talking about uncertainty and breaking good news, amongst other things. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.